open, off and Stiley Sensory stayed in the gate. There's Bo Rogue being set alight immediately by Cyril Small and racing to the lead. But Bo Rogue won't give up, he's still in front. Groucho's grabbing him now. Groucho coming at Bo Rogue, don't play, getting a rails run. Bo Rogue in front, he's got a heart as big as himself. He'll win, Bo Rogue! Bo Rogue has cracked it at last. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. The Tab Highway races introduced in 2015 have been a runaway winner for racing New South Wales and country participants. Every bit as popular are the Midways, introduced as recently as July 2021 and already a primary focus of the smaller metropolitan and provincial stables. How fitting it was that the very first Midway winner, Albalagio Miss, was trained by Greg Hickman, who'd been a very enthusiastic advocate of the concept. Even the inaugural Four Pillars run on October 30th last year was run under midway conditions and won impressively by the Tracy Bartley train Kiss Sum. The midways have been a natural progression from the highly popular highways, which have been a regular feature on Saturday Metropolitan programs for six years. The highways have created tremendous interest with country owners who are constantly on the lookout for the right horse. Bush trainers have something to aim for with progressive horses and the punters find the Tab Highways great betting mediums. The highways and the midways, now worth $100,000, are a major part of the new look of New South Wales racing. In all my years in the Sydney media, I've had no better mate than Graham McNeese, universally known as the Shadow. Graham started his media career as a race caller, covering all three codes at different times and doing the job very capably. He had many years as a producer and presenter on Channel 10, Club Superstation and Sky Channel, all the while working on his greatest passion, the creation of television and video documentaries on a wide range of subjects. His projects have always been carefully selected, expertly produced, well-written and presented by people who Graham felt would best suit the documentary in question. He has just released his latest and one of his best. It's called The Master's Apprentices, the story of Theo Green, master tutor of apprentice jockeys, who developed the talents of some of Australia's best riders. One of his star protégés was Ron Quinton, now a successful trainer, and like his old boss, a master tutor of kids. Let's talk to Graham McNeese about his latest doco, The Master's Apprentice's Shadow. It's an absolute delight to have you on the podcast. Well, Tabby, it is for me, and I thank you most humbly for that uh, lovely introduction. Um, I've had a wonderful time over all those years. <clears throat> Very satisfying being able to produce uh, documentaries, particularly on individuals and, and great achievements in sport, and not only on sport, but other uh, facets of life. And um, I've always treasured your friendship, mate. It goes back a long, long time, as you said, um, but it's um, you're a great mate. Thanks, Shad. The documentary, uh, the one we're talking about, The Master's Apprentices, 
has been in the pipeline for more than 20 years. Mm. Now, you interviewed Theo shortly before he died in 1999, but you had to put that tape aside because of increasing commitments at Sky Channel. That's right, yes. I was uh, in 1995, I left Sky for the start-up of Foxtel, and that was involved in producing a lot of material for Foxtel. And at the same time, I did it on my own back because I always promised to do the Theo Green story, The Master of Apprentices. And um, as you said, I interviewed Theo way back then. I interviewed Gordon Spinks at that time, um, John Duggan, Malcolm Johnson, and uh, a few others way back then. And then when I was called back to Sky in 1998, you'll recall this, Mm. the opening day of Sky Racing into the Homes in September 5, 1998, Mm. uh, uh, I always meant to get stuck into the Theo Green, but as you say, commitments over all those years mm. prevented me from doing so. And um, I had promised um, his daughter and um, others involved with Theo Green that I would, mm. I would do it. It took me 20 years to do it, but more <laughs> well, than 20 years, 20, 23 or 24 years. Yeah. Um, you to told me, Shad, that every time you looked at those tapes sitting yeah. on the shelf, you felt guilty. I felt guilty, all right. Did I? What? Um, but then, you know, with the help of uh, Peter Valandis and Sky Racing, um, I went to them and uh, they supported me. And so I started the ball rolling again about a year ago. Mm. And uh, it's, I think, turned out very well. And of course, as you said, that uh, Ron Quinton uh, became uh, a so-called master of apprentices, just like his boss. Mm. And uh, his story is fascinating as well. The documentary premiered on Sky Thoroughbred Central and it'll get plenty of reruns uh, on the Sky Network. But for those who want to add it to their collection of your classics, what procedure should be followed? Oh, uh, well... They'll be available at our www.shadowproductions.com.au site. Mm-hmm. So they can pay by credit card there. And it will be ready to go probably in about two weeks' time. Great. I think yep. it's time our podcast listeners got to know a little bit more about the background of the man they call Shadow. Do you have any idea who was responsible for that nickname? Yes. <clears throat> I've never told this story out uh, publicly, Tappy. Mm. But here he goes. Yeah, it was Peter Bosley. Mm. Peter Bosley, uh, who used to be on um, TUE, and those days he was on TUE for a hell of a long time. Mm. And um, it was one midweek meeting. I used to fill in for Des Hoisted. I was contracted to TUE mm. as the fill-in for Des back in those days. This is going back a long time, back in the 70s. And uh, I was considerably overweight too, you may recall, Tabby. <laughs> <laughs> used to have a nickname for me, one with egg. Big Mac. <laughs> yeah, Big, Big Mac. <laughs> Anyhow, um, back in those days, the, 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 the tape boards aren't what they are today. They were manual, and they were out the back, and I was calling it Canterbury. Mm. So they had to step out of the broadcast box onto the roof. You had the microphone around your neck, mm. and you'd 
give them uh, the the toad prices of what they were from one to whatever it was. Mm. <clears throat> Pardon me. Anyhow, um, as I moved out onto the, the deck, Peter Bosley came over and said, as Graham McNeese steps onto the roof at Canterbury Racecourse, he casts a giant shadow. Oh, gosh. And I said, I oh, think it has, uh, Bos. <laughs> Anyhow, I, when I went back and threw back to the studio, and he said, thank you, shadow. And every time he crossed me from that moment, it was the shadow at Canterbury. Here he is. Goodness me, hasn't it, it just, stuck? Hasn't it well, stuck? Hasn't it bloody old stuck, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but anyhow, people from five years old and 98 call you Shadow. Well, yes. Um, <laughs> I'm not so proud of it, but I never tell the story as to the reason why and how it came about until, until today. So there's an exclusive for you. Oh, it's a beauty. <laughs> You were the eldest of six kids born to Sid and Marion McNeese. Three boys, three girls. And I'm proud to say that one of your sisters, Deidre, is among my dearest friends. You grew up in the inner suburb of Croydon Park where your dad had a butcher shop. Did dad want you to follow in his footsteps? Oh, yes, I think he, he definitely, um, he probably deep down knew I was going to follow in his footsteps. Mm. It, well, first of all, we started with a butcher shop in in uh, Roselle, mm. Darling Street, Roselle, which was nothing like the Roselle Balmain of what it is today. Mm. It was a tough area and the wharfies and all those sorts of things. Um, and then in, he and Nana bought another shop in um, Croydon Park, as you say. So we moved from Haverfield to Croydon Park, mm. two-storey place, six kids, uh, mum and dad, grandpa and and Nan, yeah. and um, we just, well, I, I used to, five days a week, I'd come home from school, and I'd do the deliveries, mm. um, and then on Saturday, I'd be down help serving with Dad and Mum in the shop, and, mm. and everything was finished by midday. Yeah. Um, Wait, so we're before... well fed, well, well fed on meat. Yeah. <laughs> before <laughs> we leave those deliveries you're talking about, yeah. You often delivered orders to customers on a push bike that had oh. a little a little storage basket on the handlebars. Yeah, well, it was a pretty sizable one, actually, Tabby. It had a small wheel, yeah. unlike about half the size of the back wheel, yeah. but this big basket on the front, and I used to have to deliver to various customers all around where we lived. Mm-hmm. And um, one day I had a bad accident actually um, I was driving up we had a customer called Wardell House which used to be for the elderly, it was run by the Methodist Church and they had big orders and quite often you know, were unable to take holidays because they needed their orders in every time like five or six times a week yep. anyhow I was driving I left and drove started to ride up to the hospital took a back road which had new gravel on it mm. and um, as I'm going in I went to brake and as it, I brake it jammed and threw me up in the air oh. but it also threw up 65 short loin chops 10 pound of sausages and 8 pound of tripe <laughs> all over the all over the street <laughs> wow oh no I, I had gravel in my knees and anyhow a couple of neighbours came out from where I'd fallen and 
and they called Dad, and I ended up at Western Suburbs Hospital. Yeah. I'm not sure what happened to the chops and the tripe. <laughs> but so I'll long. never forget that. I'll never forget it. Yeah, so what year are we talking about? Oh, uh, 1962 maybe. Goodness 60, me. Yeah, around that time. Yeah. I was still at school. Mm. The year I even thought. Stevens won the cup. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, Mum and Dad operated another little business in the butcher shop, which was well patronised by regular customers. Yes, well, I'm not too sure well patronised, Miss Britt, but you know, we had plenty of beds. <laughs> dad would close the shop. My mum and dad would close the shop at 12, we'd clean up. And then up in the office, um, there was that's where the phone for the shop was. Mm. And it was a little SP operation up there. Mum and dad and and I would take a lot of the calls, what have you. Mm. And then oh my god, arguments would start where to lay off and but anyhow that, that operated for quite some time. The way they used to do it to a lot of customers, they come in the shop on Saturday morning and they'd order a leg of ham, uh, five <laughs> chump chops you know, a pound of sausages, <laughs> and there, and then in the other hand, they'd hand me before I could wrap it up a, a little a note or a card or something, and in there would be the bets. Yeah, you know, two pound on tulloch, ten shillings on Grecian Vale or whatever it may be at the time. Mm. So um, we never got caught, thank God. We weren't we weren't all that big. You, you said a little operation. You're quite yeah. right. It was a little operation, but it, <clears throat> there at times there was a lot of angst. Yeah. Um, and Mum loved her bets too. She'd have fifty cents each way. This and and Mum would something we'd lose during the day. And Mum would with the long shot winners, yeah. she'd win. You know, yeah. she had fifty to one, sixty six. She was very tinny, Mum. Yeah, tinny. Um, so uh, oh no, great and one days. One time, Tappy, one Saturday afternoon, my our uncle Jim dropped in for a cup of tea. And, um, which is not the, you, the least you want him to come in on a Saturday afternoon. And uh, so I had to pull the phone plug out down in the office, rush upstairs, under the bed, plug it in up there and take the bets there and whisper. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, why are you whispering? Oh, it's all right. Uh, no problem. Uncle came over to visit. So they'd try and wind him up with his cup of tea and scones and yeah. out the door, and I'd go back downstairs. Now, why Funny couldn't days, you trust? Happy. Why couldn't you trust Uncle Jim with that secret? Well, he was very religious. <laughs> yeah. um, he was not keen about me getting involved with uh, race calling and all those sorts of things. Mm. He might have been right. I don't know. But anyhow, um, no, he was a wonderful Uncle Jim, but oh, very righteous, if you know what I mean. Yeah, a bit narrow-minded. <laughs> narrow-minded, yeah. yeah. Your dad was a very keen boxing fan, and, yeah. and he'd gotten to know a bloke called Frank Kennedy in the fight game. Yeah, that was back in the 40s, I mean, it was, mm -hmm. 50s, and um, Frank was a well, fifth now 50. Frank was promoting in the 60s, mm. so it would have been in the 50s at some time. Yeah, well, Frank, of and, course, um, became a greyhound caller, and he yep. was calling the dogs for a fascinating little radio station called 2KA Katoomba, That's which right. could be heard on the fringe of Sydney. 
a lot yeah. of people in the uh, outer Sydney suburbs could clearly pick up 2KA. Yep, so they had a market, and under Frank's tutelage, you got to cut your teeth as a greyhound caller. Yes, that's when the TAB started betting on those uh, races uh, during the weekend, Saturday nights, of course, they did that. Mm. Um, and how it came about was we used to sell chickens as well mm. in the shop. And now they, they were a delicacy back in those days, not like today. Um, they were, you know, more expensive. And uh, the fellow that used to sit, would buy the chickens from from his chicken farm also had a greyhound trialling track mm. out of Chipping Norton mm. called Clary Moorhead. And um, he asked me would I like to come out and call uh, the trials once a week. I think he paid me 10 quid, mm. uh, which was quite a little bit of money then. Yeah. And, of course, with the trialling track and the greyhounds, he knew Frank Kennedy, and I eventually met up with Frank, and he asked me to come out. Would I like to come up? Uh, to the provincial greyhound meetings and learn the trade, so to speak. Mm. And that's what I did. Um, and started up and I'd be working, those days I was working um, I just out of the shop. Dad was very upset with me not following on in the butcher shop business. And I worked for Queensland Insurance in town. And then at five o'clock I'd rush to Wynyard Station then catch the train to Granville, which is normally a generally fast train. Mm. Frank would be waiting there. And on Monday night, I'd go to Wollongong, Gosford Tuesday, Bulleye Wednesday, Dapto Thursday. Mm. And when Richmond started up on the Friday nights, Richmond of a Friday night as well. Goodness, and that's how I, you know, I used to get one race to call. Mm. And then when he went on holidays, well, I called uh, the meetings until he got back. Mm. Well, Frank later became 2UE's Greyhound caller. And you That's went right. along with him, and you've already mentioned that you became official understudy to the station's chief caller, Des Hoisted, and yeah. you called a race or two at the midweek meetings, and that's how you got the name Shadow. And when Des went on holidays, you'd do the gallops and the Harold Park trots on a Friday. Yeah, that's right. Yes, I did, um, and I loved it. I really did, but um, Frank went to to you where we started doing Wentworth and the Harold Park Dogs of a Saturday night. Mm. Um, and in those days, um, the, eventually Harold Park closed the Greyhound, which was the greatest track of all, I believe. Mm. Um, and everything went to Wentworth Park. But um, I was very fond of Frank. He was uh, like, he became, and as did his family, uh, became my second family. Mm. And uh, they were wonderful years, and he was very generous and helped me out in calling the races, as was Des. Yeah. I remember one day, Canterbury, uh, Tappy, you would have been there next door. Mm. I called the wrong horse in a finish. Mm. It was uh, trained by Albert McKenna, and he had two horses in it. When you imagine what I felt like, mm. Des got on and corrected everything. I said, Des, I'm, I'm going, I think I was still working there, I was going back to work. Mm. <clears throat> And he said, no, you're calling the next race. I said, no. He said, if you don't call the next race, don't come back anymore. Yeah. So yeah. he made me call the next race. And yeah, that was wise that, of Des. It's like yeah. falling off a horse. You've got to get back on yeah. again. Mm. Yep. So I overcame that. And, uh, yeah, so it was uh, exciting days. The Bong Bong Cup 
was enormously popular in the 1970s, so much so that TUE sent you down to cover the event in 1973, and it's a day you'd rather forget. <laughs> yes, well, they sent down a double-decker bus of personalities. Uh, I drove down with a mate called Tommy Green, and uh, Peter Johnson uh, was sort of my offside of them calling races. Do you remember Peter? I do. Spoke to yeah. him recently. Yeah, yeah fantastic young man. Mm. Anyhow, um, picturing Bong Bong, for those who haven't seen it back in those days, it was set in a paddock, and um, this right in the middle, the winning post, which where it normally is in the official stand, which could cater for about 15 people, that's about all, and all down the home straight, and from the start, they'd start the Bong Bong Cup at the top of the straight, run out of the straight, and they right in front of them, there was this massive, massive hill in the centre of the track. Mm. So they couldn't see anything went over the back until they came to the home turns. You had to rely on the race caller. Anyhow, I was, at those days, I was, Bert Richmond asked to be the race caller, mm. and TUE sent the bus down, and they were going to do a delayed broadcast mm. of the Bong Bong Cup. And it was always on Caulfield Cup Day, I always remember. And they used to get huge crowds. And I think the crowd was nearly 10,000. Mm. You could actually vote there on the day. I'm sure it was the elections. Mm. And uh, you could vote there. Anyhow, but of course, they drink so much and get out of hand, the crowd. So I made my way up to the top of the hill where there was a, an elevated stand yeah. uh, for me to climb the steps and call with my mate Tommy Green. With the steward, um, he had a full view of the race, obviously. And, of course, you know, drunks trying to climb up, drag coins, oh, you've got no idea. Mm. And I had to do like a full circle and a bit, um, turning around and calling the race. Mm. Anyhow, I called the race and down to the winning post, sure, and Fars was in the finish, I remember that. Mm. And I said, right, Peter, you take over now. I've got to get down to the to the secretary's office and transfer this race back to TUE. Anyhow, as I'm walk, starting to walk down, I had this big Ewer tape recorder that I was carrying, and I'd been in the previous night instructed how to work it. And when I played it back, it went for the outside in Fallujah. <laughs> and I thought, what's wrong with this? I've got it on the wrong speed. There were three speeds on it. Yeah. So I went to the next speed. That was... And what had happened, uh, after my instructions the previous night at TUE, I left the thing on all night and it drained the battery. Oh, and I thought, what am I going to do? And, he, and we're walking down and I said, uh, Tom, I can't go to the secretary's office. Everyone's in there and they're taking all the prices for the interstate bookmakers. I said, well, we've got to go somewhere. So we'll go to a garage. So we got down the bottom, hopped in the car, went down to the Caltech service station, the local service station. And there are all these people. I said, mate, fill it up. And can I urgently use your phone? Mm. And he said, sure, mate, away you go. So I rang the control room at TUE. And a guy there by the name of Pommy Bob, you remember him? Ah, uh, vividly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he answers, he says, where have you been? Where have you been, Shadow? Oh, I said, there was a shocking delay at the start. Horses broke through and it took them so long to get back there and stall them, put them back in the stores. Oh, I understand. He said, are you ready to go? And so I timed myself, I had my watch. And um, I said, yep, okay, 
play the recording, so I put it up to the mic, to the phone, and they'd go, they're racing in, on the one, the first out, so and so, and I did the whole lap, right round to the finishing post, and it was a phantom, what they call a phantom call. Mm. And uh, he said, oh, that was a great call, mate. Thank you. We'll get that to air straight away. Knowing Chris Kearns, who was on air coordinating, mm. had been saying for the previous 20 minutes or so, mm. shortly that delayed broadcast from Graham McNeese said, bong bong. Mm. Anyhow, um, they played it. I never said a word. Drove off. When I turned around, people clapped me. Every car that came into the garage... <laughs> See, have a look at this bloke here on the Goodness phone. Me, yeah. Anyhow, so I went back and uh, got away with it. I wouldn't dare till theirs. Mm. But he found out eventually. Oh, of course he did. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a closely oh, yes. knit group, the media world. Oh, yes. I thought I'd get sacked. <laughs> well, Anyhow. You, you obviously didn't, and you're still here to tell the story. Yeah, yeah. Shad, you lost your great friend and mentor, Frank Kennedy, to yeah. leukaemia in the mid-1970s, leaving a very big void in your life. Oh, yeah. Look, as I said, they became my second family. Yeah. I'd spend, I don't think there's one Christmas up until a couple of years ago that I did not spend with the Kennedys. Mm. And then I'd go and spend it up, I'd drive up home to with mum yep. up on the central coast. Um, but no, I, it was a void. He looked after me, very protective, and um, people loved him on, on television, you know, the, the, for the little punter, mm. 50 cents little punter, he'd stick up for them all the time, mm. and he and Max on Punter's Postmortem, uh, they get into great arguments, mm. but of course, At, we're very, uh, very after sick. he got sick, you filled in for him on that Channel 7 program for quite a while. Yes, I... I um, I used to fill in when they'd go away for a two-week holiday mm. on Punter's Postmortem, where Ian Craig was on the, you know, the host. Yeah. And uh, then when Frank became ill uh, in 1976 and slowly, gravely ill, mm. and eventually he passed away, um, I did that show of uh, Sunday morning, Rex Mossop's show, and um, then... Uh, it was through Ray Warren, yeah. who used to work uh, part-time and bef before full-time at Channel 10. Mm. He got me in with uh, John Bailey, the late John Bailey, to come and produce the sports bulletin mm. of a Saturday and a Sunday. I'd go in in the afternoons. So I was working at both for a little while. And then Tom Barnett, who was the news director at 10, he wanted to put me on full-time and offer me a job. And that was the beginning of one, nine wonderful years at 10. And uh, that humble start uh, took you a long way because in 1983 you became the regular presenter of sport on the Channel 10 News. I can still see you sitting up there with that shock of blonde hair. <laughs> yeah, um, John Coots... Uh, was the sports reader, fabulous man, loved him. And uh, he eventually went out and started up John Coote's Furniture Warehouse, which became very big. Ron Casey came over from Channel 9 after that mm -hmm. for, I'm not too sure how long. And then when he left, uh, the late of 83, um, 
I went on to be the, as you say, the sports presenter alongside Katrina Lee and Tim Webster. Funny days. The satellite television phenomenon came to our shores in 1986. It started off in a low-key way, but you had a vision of its future role in sports media. And you took a giant step in leaving Channel 10 to become executive sports producer and chief presenter at Club Superstation, which was owned by Robert Holmes Accord. How did you kick off, Shad? What audience did you have and what did you offer them? Well, the the big thing in that around that time, um, the government the government w- wouldn't let it happen until well um, until nineteen eighty six. It's basically started, as you said. Hmm. Um, so we had, ironically, my news director Tom Barnett had left and started up a company called um, Superstation with the late Lyle McCabe. And he wanted me to come over and fulfil the roles you just said there. And it was a big choice. I had been to America, fortunately, a few times in preceding years and knew very well of the cable market over there, how it was infiltrating the audiences of the free to work, like the ABC, NBC, CBS. Mm. And so I took the job. Uh, took with me a very young tape operator named Gary Deans, mm. who's become one of the biggest uh, news, uh, biggest directors of television in, in Sydney. And uh, he had, they had done a deal with ESPN in America. So we got access just about all their material, um, the football, um, even some of the boxing and many other things like tractor pulling and uh, <laughs> Dare I say, mud wrestling. Um, but we had to, you know, the, the big race was on to get the rights for the racing, like New South Wales racing and later Victoria racing. Mm. So we started up that. Uh, we, we had a nightly program called Sports Centre. Mm. Kerry Buckridge eventually came over and partnered with me at the desk. Mm-hmm. And there was another young fellow by the name of Peter Overton who started in that same year, December of that same year, uh, as an apprentice, you might say. Wonderful, wonderful talent, as you know, and a great mate. And um, AJC, basically, and PBL had the rights, and for all the clubs in New South Wales, uh, they would negotiate the rights for... Where, where, where are they going to distribute the pictures? Mm. Now, around the same time, Alan Bond had started up Sky Channel in Perth, mm. and they were building up, and I think they main races they got over there were the Perth races. Mm. Anyhow, um, eventually the decision came down, and Bond won the day. Uh, so it was that they were going to do the gallops. But prior to that, we had been negotiating with Ken Lagrange, mm. with Keith Nolan and the late Bert Lilly. We went down and did a presentation. They decided to break away mm. and start up. And similarly, the Newcastle Jockey Club, Brian Judd, they did uh, the same thing and broke away and went with um, Superstation. Mm. We got the Greyhounds as well. Um, involved, I was uh, involved with the Greyhounds, as you mentioned. Mm. Um, and it was, we went to where basically in September of 1986 with what we had 
and in October, I'm pretty sure it was October of the same year, Sky Channel in Perth started televising the Gallup meetings in New South Wales and eventually Victoria. And uh, so we were battling away for the next 18 months, but we still battled on. One of the big things for us was um, pay-per-view television and the World Middleweight Title Championship. Mm. Sugar Ray Leonard and marvellous Marvin Hagler. Mm. And that in uh, Las Vegas, and that came down to uh, a split decision. It was extraordinary. Now, I couldn't negotiate with 7, 9 and 10 to get vision of their rugby league or golf or sports centre in those days because we were very minor to them. But when that happened, guess what? Mm. They needed vision for the news of that because it was the biggest sports thing of the day, let alone the month. Mm. And I, that's when I did a trade-off. And uh, so we could use their material, they could use ours. So it was pretty special until late 87, and Holmes the Court just dropped us. No more backing, dropped us, we were told. And I called my uh, crew in as many as I could and sat down at a little fridge in my office and we're having beers and... My concern is where am I going to place them all? Because so many from Channel 10 had come over to work with us full-time, Timmy McDonald. Mm. Oh, dear, we did, we did some wonderful things, Tappy. So anyhow, it was the following Saturday morning, <clears throat> we were told, that, or Tom told me, that um, all's okay, Bond has bought us for a dollar, plus the debt, of course. Yeah. So we became Sky Channel. Mm. Uh, eventually, we were Superstation, but then we had to show cause why we could operate it better out of our studios in Sydney than Perth. Yeah. And we put together this big presentation. They all come over. And with the help, obviously, of um, Channel 9's um, boss, Sam Chisholm, mm-hmm. um, all came to be at French's Forest, where we started from, and still there today. So an adventuresome ride it was. Well, you spent nine years hosting racing on the old Sky Channel up until 1998 when uh, the races at that stage, up until 98, were beamed into pubs and clubs only. Then came the huge announcement that Sky had gained the green light to put racing into homes all over Australia. It was a massive thing. And uh, I think one of the on-air slogans said it all, if you recall at the time, we're going to a commercial break and uh, remember you're at, you're home, at home on the track. <laughs> said it all, yeah. didn't it? It said it all, Tappy. Yes, and that was, um, that was when you had announced uh, that you were retiring from race calling. I remember that day. In fact, I did a documentary on it, Call From The Heart. Mm. It was a monumental uh, stage because after your incredible years in in calling races and you became a presenter like a co-presenter with me mm. and uh, we went to where that, now that day two horses uh, would go on to be uh, champions yep on our opening One day was, yep yes you want to recall for me well you tell me one was Sunline yeah which uh, she was a three-year-old three filly then at the time, yep. if memory serves me correctly. Yep. 
um, and it won the furious stakes. Mm-hmm. And then look what she went on to do after that. A uh, couple of Doncasters and... Two um, Cox Plates. Two Cox Plates. Oh, heavens. And the other horse that won that day, I think it may have been the Chelmsford. I'm not sure, Tabby. Yeah, it was. My, might and Power. Might and Power. And, and would it go on to complete its incredible deed mm. um, in the Caulfield and Melbourne Cups and so on? On the opening so day of racing into yes, homes, we got two horses like that, Might and Power yeah. and Sunline. Yeah, it was exciting, wasn't it? Oh, it was a hell of a day. A hell of a day, but you know, it was a monumental day. And, of course, um, the, well, the rest is history. Um, you hosted the Sunday morning review program, Racing Retro, for <laughs> 12 years. Yeah, yes, and I was probably losing you at the end, I'm not sure. That was a great show. It was a wonderful show. And it was a wonderful review program, and we used to get um, um, good ratings as well, too. You know, a lot of people turned in Sunday morning to, to watch that. We'd go longer on big race carnivals. But those days, too, Tappy, would go, we'd be going down to the tracks nearly every week mm. um, for the big race days, you know, the Group 1s or whatever they are. Yeah, uh, it was it was extraordinary, um, and the way, of course, it is built up today. I mean, look at it today, and Greg Bradley and the team—they're just brilliant. The, the the presentations, I really think so, absolutely brilliant. Shad, we better take a break on the podcast. We'll be back with you in just a moment. Mitovite has been producing high-quality feeds and supplements for all walks of equine life for almost forty years. Mitovite has become a household name in racing and breeding circles with products like Athlete, Formula 3 and Breeder. Time-tested products in the breeding barn and on the racetrack. 26 thoroughbred Group 1 winners this season have been on a Mitovite feeding regime. From humble beginnings on the New South Wales Central Coast, Mitovite has become a world leader in equine nutrition. Infrastructure investment in the production mill and close attention to nutritional science keeps Mitovite at a standard of excellence developed over four decades. Check the website, mitovite.com or follow the Mitovite Racing and Breeding Facebook page. The Mitovite brand has earned the respect of horse people all over the world. Chad, you've produced and released dozens of wonderful video docos. I think the story of Tullock was one of your first and remains one of your personal favourites. Yes, it is, Tappy, I must confess. Um, I can remember Dad taking me out to see Tullock at Randwick um, and he got beaten by Sharpley. Mm-hmm. And I was disappointed. He had me on his shoulders, and we went specific went specifically to see to see Tullock. But nonetheless, um, I used to you know, conjure up these pictures in my mind, listening to the radio when Tullock, whenever he was racing, and particularly that last race up in uh, Brisbane, mm-hmm. uh, the Brisbane Cup. Yeah. Sharply was in that race too, mm. and uh, he won in the cheering, and I think I cried, you know. Mm. So I became so attached to the horse at such a young age. Um, and so I always thought if I can put together a doco on Tullock and all the docos I've done, I would do so, and I'm glad I did. I had a lot of vision of Tullock. You know where I found it? Mm. Tapping? 
I found it. I was asked by someone at the AJC, come and have a look under the old, um, I think they were the tea sheds or something at Randwick, mm. where a lot of old film had been thrown in there. And in there was all these reels and reels of films. So I took them all away. Said, uh, they didn't want anything to do it. They were throwing them out. And in there, there were so many, like Don Carter's Epsons and Sydney Cups, mm. back of the 60s. Uh, and among them was number of races with Tolkien involved. And I had them transferred from film to tape. And I uh, put that together. Uh, the AJC helped me out with uh, part of that and also when I produced That's Racing. Mm. But I'm so glad I did. And it's still one of my favourites. It's a, a very emotional story, Tullock. And uh, I'm glad I put it together and still one of my favourites. I still put it on time to time. Mm. Shadow, I mentioned in the introduction that you selected presenters who you felt would suit the documentary in question, and I've never forgotten your choice of a man called Alwyn Kurtz yes. to do the voiceover on the Tullock video. Alwyn was a great actor. Uh, yes. He had a voice that suited Tullock's era. Yeah, well, it was. I wanted it to be as seen through the minds, say, of a grandfather showing his son and grandkids and mm. talking to them about Tullock. And he was the best. He was a big smoker, Daddy. Mm. Um, those days, you know, come into the booth and you could smoke in the booth and everything. Mm. Um, but he was a lovely man, mm. lovely man. And, and, oh, the voiceover like you, I agree, it just fitted the subject perfectly. And yeah. he's, he's now gone, of course. He was well cast. Thank you. Chad, another early one was That's Racing, which provided an amazing trip down memory lane for several generations of people. Yes, it was from the start of racing. Uh, it finished up uh, in around 1996, 97, I'm not sure when. Um, but that's when I was so involved with Sky, I couldn't do any other docos at the time, but eventually I did. In, in the end, I kept continuing. Um, but no, that's that was coupled up with things that happened at the time. You know, like um, Burnborough, uh, it was post-war and people started getting to the jitterbug and, you know, it'd show things were happening at that time. They were memorable things, particularly the war period what was going on overseas and it had come back to the racing. And uh, I was very proud of that sold very well. Mm. It's still available, but it's, um, it needs the rest of the years tacked on, if you know what I mean. Of course. So yeah. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that very much. And then came that's rugby league, that's surfing, that's boxing. Yeah. You were able to source amazing footage and a company called Film World were of great assistance. Yes, they had the rise to the Cine Sound movie tone, mm. used for, oh, decades. And uh, the lady who was owned that, Eileen Naseby, mm. was a wonderful friend of mine because I got to know her way back in my very early days at Channel 10. Mm. And she started that up. I'd been to the old Cine Sound movie tone library in Darling Street, Roselle, mm. Uh, when I was making Cook, the legend lives on, uh, way back in oh, about 81, I think it was. Mm. And uh, I knew I had to get some f film, and I went down there, and there was an old, old fellow who 
he smoked like a chimney. And he said, yeah, and I'd always take him down a, a carton of Rothmans. <laughs> and he said, yeah, <laughs> bribing. Anyhow, he said, go in and have a look. Have a look at that. Yeah, take that. Take this. No one wanted them in those days. And uh, so I got to access that library. Um, and then, of course, when Eileen took over, it was even better. We did deals on that and many other docos and material for Foxtel as well. She was wonderful. So it was great access to have over those many years and was able, I was been able to produce those, pardon me, documentaries with that assistance, particularly going back in, in anything before the 70s. Getting away from sport, and there was a wonderful two-part special you did called In One Lifetime, again using that wonderful footage uh, from Film yes, World. Yes, we did. And you picked uh, yes. the right voice for this one, John Laws. John Laws, well, it was in association with a guy called Peter Sutton, who I worked with or previously worked with at Channel 10, and uh, we produced that and... In conjunction with John Laws, uh, and he, he would, when it was completed, he'd get on at about five to ten on when he was on to UE, mm. and uh, he'd say, "Now the, this new documentary of mine, in one lifetime, shows this and this, and this is the number you call to get it." Well, yeah. we didn't have enough phones to answer. Really? Um, sorry, enough people to answer the phones, mm. and um, it took off. It really, and in the stores we'd. Um, Deirdre, my sister, used to help me pack the parcels and mm. send them off to to David Jones and Grace Brothers, or became Maya, um, and to all this uh, right around Australia. Mm. Uh, it was um, a big, but that was uh, you're right. John Laws was the right voice, and he was, yeah, having him involved was the vital thing. Uh, outside of that, you know, I've um, I remember I'd, one of my first documentaries was. Pride of the League, the history of South Sydney. Mm-hmm. In 1987, we did that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, you, you've mentioned those other ones, and there's other significant ones uh, produced in conjunction with... Yeah, Fox one of your best, Shadow, you may have forgotten it, when Harold Park yeah. was sold to Mervac oh. in uh, 2010 and the historic right. venue closed down... You were commissioned by Harness Racing New South Wales yeah. to produce a history of Harold Park, a century of trotting uh, in the city of Sydney, and you gave it uh, the most imaginative name, the Ribbon of Light. Yeah. Yes, that was right. I went there, obviously, on the last night, um, filmed it. It was like being back in its heyday where the crowd was so big on that night. I think it was about 18,000, Tabby, I'm not sure. On the last night, yes. yes. On the last night, yeah, Mm. it was. And people were taking, you know, posts out of the straight and taking them home uh, for um, sentimental value. I knew a lot of the interviews that the late Brian Howard had uh, recorded over so many years, particularly through the 60s, and the races that he recorded. I bought his library in the end. You, you're well of that, aware of that. Yeah. And that was very much integral um, to the making of the docos. Extraordinary stuff going way back to the greats. And, of course, then we went right around Australia and to New Zealand to film um, the stars of harness racing um, all over the years 
those years and years since. So I, I, I used to love going to the trots of a Friday night. It was, you know, you go and have some Chinese and off <laughs> you go to the trots. I used to always do that. Chad, it was part of, part of the Sydney social fabric. Oh, it was, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah, it really was. You know, they used to get great crowds there. When I looked at the vision of that um, Caduceus um, winning the... Inter-Dominion 1960. Inter-Dominion. Oh, the crowd there. Mm. I think it was up around... Do you it know was, what it was? 40,000, yeah. 50,000? No, it was 50. 50,000. 50,000 people somehow 50, crammed into that? Harold Park Paceway. Nobody yeah. knows how. No. And, and the vision supports it. Mm. Um, but no, I loved doing that documentary. Oh, look, if I don't like the subject matter, I would not do a documentary, mate. Obviously, so, uh, yeah. I love I love what I do, and with the help of everyone as well. Now, two other beautiful documentaries, near and dear to your heart. Again, nothing to do with sport or racing. No. One was called "Thanks for Listening: A History of Australian Radio." Yeah. It's one of my favourites, and another one called Saturday Night at the Movies, and this was inspired by your lifetime love of the old movie theatres, the old cinemas. Oh, yeah. Oh, the, the, particularly going to the town, into town, looking up at the high ceilings and the, uh, the Organ ornaments music. And, mm. and the chandeliers and the state theatre, the Regent Theatre, mm. which is now gone, that's a disgrace. Um, the, the the plaza where Cinerama used to be. Uh, do you remember Cinerama? I do. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Prince Edward. Oh, the Prince Edward. Mm. And I went to see one movie there when my auntie took me to St James. Yeah. Um, all those theatres in Pitt Street, uh, the Liberty, um, and then the Castle Ray, the Mayfair, the Sound of Music, and all that. <laughs> and the ones up near Central, I loved. Yeah. Uh, the Barclay, that's where I saw Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. Went back two nights later again. I was so taken by it. And the Forum. Oh, no. And that, because our local theatres were Croydon Park, Bughouse. Yep. And the uh, <laughs> Ash, Ashfield, <laughs> Ashfield yeah. Hoyts and Kings. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, well, no, I, you've, cap- you've captured them all on that one, Shadow, on that documentary, yeah. Saturday Night at the Movies. Is that still yeah, available? It's just not. Just not New South. Sorry to interrupt, Tabby. Mm. That's just not Sydney, New South Wales. We went right around Australia, mm. all the country venues that were great theatres: yeah. uh, Brisbane, Melbourne, which has kept me so many of their theatres, unlike Sydney. Yeah, um, Adelaide and Perth and Tassie. Mm. No, it was. And of course, there's one theatre up in uh, Darwin. Oh, sorry, in Broome. Mm. In Broome, it's over a hundred years old. Still going, mm. and, it's, and it's half covered. And when there's a high tide, the water comes in. You can you just about catch fish <laughs> while you're watching the movies. <laughs> Is that one Imagine still available, that. Graham? Saturday night Sorry? at the movie. Is that one still yeah. available? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on the website. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, shadowproductions.com.au. Foxtel commissioned you to produce a series called Crime Investigations of Australia. Again, yeah. you picked the right voice, Steve Liebman. Now, initially, yeah. it was to be just a couple of episodes, but it quickly escalated. Yeah, well, Steve was um, voiceover and the presenter of that. Um, he had just left the Today Show when uh, Walsh did the deal with him, mm-hmm. Brian Walsh, that is from Foxtel. 
And um, you're so right. He added so much authority to each and and empathy to each and every episode. There were some horror ones. We started off with three. Then they were commissioned five more. Then eight and ten and ten. So it was 36 episodes all up. So you'll recall, Tavi, that... When they, these happened, particularly crimes of the 60s, 70s, you weren't told much of actually what happened. Uh, the newspapers informed you and let you know that someone was killed, raped, tortured, but not exactly what was the story lead up and how it happened. Mm. And, of course, through the eyes of the police, um, were able to tell those sto- stories and expand on them. Um, now, very harrowing at times, I tell you. Uh, but nonetheless, very successful. Is there any unfinished business for you, anything you wanted to do but haven't had time to do it? Um, no, I, look, I I keep forgetting just how many doctors I've done. Uh, just people remind me. Um, the last one I've done, which uh, you're involved with, um, has only just been released, as you mentioned at the start of this interview. The Master's Apprentices. The Master's Apprentices, yeah. I'm very, very proud of that and thankful to everyone who was involved. I don't think there's any of the sports or or other documentaries that I've yearned to do. Mm. They probably might come along, those things. I'm, look, I'm not going to retire from doing the documentaries, but they've got to be successful. I'm just... Uh, uh, it's all catching up with me a bit, as you know. So, um, no, no, I've had a wonderful time. You've been actively involved in media and documentary production for about 55 years. Now, looking back over that half century and more, who are the special people who've touched your heart or influenced your career? The major players in the life of Graham McNeese. Well, I'd start off with my mum, my late mum. Um, my dad wasn't keen on me leaving the, the butcher's business at all. I, I think I was a disappointment to dad. But mum, on the other hand, encouraged me. She really did, all those years. And, and she took a great deal of pride in any documentary or anything was said about me um, publicly in a positive manner. Frank Kennedy... And the family. Mm. They are my second family, as I've already mentioned. But uh, Frank spearheaded my start into into race commentating and getting into the business, so to speak. Um, Tom Barnett at Channel 10, yeah. he hired me. He was supportive of me all the way through and is still supportive of me today, I'd have to say. And Brian Walsh from Foxtel. Um even from the days when we were both at Channel 10 uh, until he took up his role more than 20 years ago at Foxtel. Uh, and he and the powers to be at Foxtel have commissioned all these documentaries that were produced, we've produced for, uh, for Foxtel. And there's you, Tappy. You have been the, one of the great supports of my life and encouraging uh, friends. So... Um, I'm deeply grateful uh, to you for all that. And they're, you know, they're just some of the people that 
Um, I can never thank enough. Do you have any regrets that you didn't fully pursue a career in race calling? No, Tappy. I enjoyed those days uh, back in the 70s, early 80s, and calling the Greyhounds at Harold Park uh, to the mid-80s. Yeah, enjoyed them immensely. Uh, but um, I w- wouldn't call myself ever an A-grade race caller. And so I think I found my niche in doing documentaries and um, my work at uh, Superstation slash Sky Channel over all those years. I still treasure those to this very day, still in, uh, employed by Sky on an advisory capacity. But no, it's been a wonderful ride. Well, you're an A-grade bloke and you're an A-grade friend. And uh, I'm just wondering about something you told me recently. Only a few weeks ago, when you'd completed your latest doco, The Master's Apprentices, you said, this is the last. (laughs) This is my swan song. Now, I can remember you telling me the same thing four documentaries back. (laughs) Yeah. How true, Tappy. How true. So... um I'm not going to put the end of it on now. So You're right. Yep. I'll still keep going while the good Lord lets me do so. Lovely to have you on the podcast, Shadow. Pleasure, Tappy. Absolute pleasure. You've got more things out of me today um, <laughs> than I've ever told anyone. <laughs> well, that's good. That was my job uh, on, a, on a most pleasant and... Uh, interesting and informative, a fascinating podcast interview with the man they call The Shadow. And this podcast has been produced by Supernova Sound. The catalogue for the 2022 English Classic Yearling Sale is now available. A total of 810 yearlings have been finalised for the sale, 600 in Book 1, 150 in the Highway Session, all to be offered at Riverside between February 6 and 8. 700 of the entries are Bob's eligible and there are Vobus, West Speed and QTIS yearlings also on offer. There's an enormous range of proven stallions represented as well as first crop yearlings by exciting newcomers like Justify, The Autumn Sun and Trapeze Artist. The classic sale has seen unprecedented growth in recent years with 10 individual Group 1 winners since 2018. Eight of those have been purchased for $100,000 or less, while 14 graduates have won a million dollars or more in the same period. The classic sale gets the English show on the road for 2022 on February 6, 7 and 8 at Riverside. And the catalogue is out now.